0: Brian Nichols you're a great man with some great ideas a great
1: podcast do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people (laughs) yes he's full of common sense and wisdom Brian Nichols here on the Brian Nichols show Welcome to The Brian
0: Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network.
1: Today, I am joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kibbe. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show.
0: Hey, Brian, it's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and, and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about
1: all right, welcome back to the Brian Nichols Show. I'm your host, Brian Nichols, Associate Editor over at the Libertarian Republic. And today we are joined for another fun filled episode on the Brian Nichols Show. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, the episode we had here on Tuesday uh, with Austin Seckel from U.S. Term Limits. I thought it was a very engaging and uh, interesting conversation, a chance to learn a lot about term limits and then why it's so important here in uh, 2018 and then going forward into the uh, the 2018 midterms. But Today, we are joined by, again, a phenomenal guest. Yes, uh, you can find her over at R Street Institute, but let's be real. If if you're familiar with my guest here, you probably know her from Twitter. It is the one and only Shoshana Weissman. How are you? Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm nerdtastic.
1: Nerdtastic. And I, I say this entirely, you know, as a fanboy, you are one of the funniest uh, most engaging and thought-provoking Twitter follows on Twitter. And just to start off, your Twitter name is hilarious, at Senator Shoshana, because you get so much crap from people who message you saying, like, Dear Senator, you should really vote against this this particular bill. I'm counting on you. And it's <laughs> just the fact that people actually think that you're a senator because they're not going to do their homework. They just type in, at Sen, and then they see Senator Weiss or Senator Shoshana come up, or whatever your Twitter handle will be for for some point in time of the year. Whether it's Senator Sloth, something, 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 it's always hilarious. Um, and then you get some wild and crazy, rabid person going after you, and they have no clue.
2: Yeah, thank you. It's uh, I, you know, it it worked out great that way. That wasn't what it was even intended for. I was just a young political nerd, and I wanted to be a senator one day. So when I was I think I was 16 when I first joined Twitter, and I didn't tweet much for years. But um, I just decided, okay, well, I I want to be a senator, so I'll just be Senator Shoshana. Um, it's really scary how many people think I'm a senator. Like, it's really bad for democracy, and it's a good <laughs> reason to hate majoritarianism.
1: And you have the blue check mark. So the blue check mark obviously leads people to believe that you know you're a, a verified U.S. senator, but. Like you said, it, it speaks to our democracy where we are. They can't even do research to find out, oh wait, no, the, the the lady with the name sloth in her her username isn't a real US senator.
2: Yeah, it's not so good for America, but I, I have fun with it at least. You know, you gotta enjoy it.
1: <laughs> I, I can't blame you. I mean I'm I'm at B Nichols Liberty, which is nothing nearly as as cool as Senator Sashana. Um, but to start off, I, I think it'd be great for, for folks who if they're not familiar with who you are to to learn, you know, number one, who you are, but number two, uh, kind of, what was your pathway towards like the the libertarian or liberty um, world that you know you are today, being at our street institute.
2: Sure. So it's it's different for everyone, but my path was, I mean, it worked out great for me. Um, I've been Republican since I was eight years old because I'm really pro life, but even the way I see that issue has changed a lot over the years. But um, I, I got involved in politics when I was 14 because I was really sick with endometriosis when I was uh, uh, tw- uh, sorry 13 and 14. Um, so once I got better, I wanted to do stuff. And my dad said, well, why not join the Young Republicans? So I did. And I'm actually still friends with some of the people from back home uh, today. Um, it's funny. One of them works for Senate Judiciary. So when she moved here, it was great to have her here. She's literally like the first person I ever met in politics. Um, so I did that. Uh, I interned worked at a ton of different organizations over the years. Um, I've been working in politics since I was 14, volunteering, interning. Um, it was local politics back home. But when I was 16, I got involved in the Federalist Society because like, of course, I got involved in the Federalist Society. But um, I, I really enjoyed that. And I wanted to learn more about law because I figured, well, if I'm going to be involved in politics, I should really understand the the basics of it and you know what our foundations are so um after uh, I I went to college uh, when I was eighteen as as a normal person who goes to college does um, (laughs) my first internship was at the National Republican Senatorial Committee because I'm like is there a way I can intern for like Republican senators like is this a thing I can do and it turned out I could so I'm like oh this is awesome. So I got to meet a handful of senators there, and I doubt any of them remember me from there, but I had fun just meeting people I admired. Um, and then uh, I got more involved in the Federalist Society over those years. Um, I met a lot of my heroes who I'm now friends with, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you let me talk to you. And like, <laughs> they think we're friends, but I'm still nerding on the inside that they let me talk to them. They're wonderful. Um, but it was a lot of interning. And also because I'd been working in politics for so long, people were willing to hire me while I was still in college. Um, So I managed comms for a guy running for Congress back home on Long Island when I was um, 19. Um, And I learned that I loved social media. That part of it was really interesting to me. And I did some really unique things just because when you start out, you think about it a little bit differently. Um, And it was it was a ton of fun. Um, But also reporters were really mean. And back home, um, we're known as like the Chicago type of kind of part of New York. Like a lot of it's really bad, but it's really bad where I was from. So uh, journalists tried to get me to bribe them and stuff. And it was just really bad. Um, So because I was like a 19 year old, I'm like, okay, this is terrible and this is daunting. Um, So throughout college, I worked at consulting firms and a bunch of other places. Um, When I graduated, I went to America Rising Pack, which was great. And I learned a ton. And um, I started getting my name out there more, but um, I just didn't find it as fulfilling so I went to the Weekly Standard um, where I could do some more intellectual stuff when I was 22, um, and I really enjoyed that, but um, but I still wanted to do more creative stuff, and I wasn't able to do both there. Um, I went to a- another job when I was uh, 24, um, and it was fantastic until it died. It was about happy conservatism, and then they eat Trump, <laughs> that's not going to last. And now I'm 25. I've been at uh, the R Street Institute for about a year and a half now, and it's the greatest job. It fits me perfectly. Um, I went to, you know, going to college in DC, you could go to think tank events whenever you wanted. And it was great for the free food. But um, I actually didn't go for the free food. I went to nerd. Um, But it never (laughs) dawned on me that I should maybe like work at a think tank. So that's how I ended up here. Um, It's a really weird path. And I could have shortened it, even though I'm young to be doing a lot of the stuff I do. But um, it was a weird path and it worked out great. So a lot of people ask me how to figure out what you want to do. A lot of it is figuring out what you don't want to do. Like, okay, I know I enjoy doing this kind of work, but not this kind of work. And figuring out um, what title corresponds to the stuff you enjoy doing and then who you want to do it for. So at the R Street Institute, I get to do lots of, um, you know, really creative stuff. But at other think tanks, I might not be able to just because it's a different kind of brand. Um, and I learned I hated comms, so I'll do some of it now when I want to. When I don't want to, no one makes me do it. <laughs> so it's it's a winding path. But if you just chase the things that you enjoy doing rather than the titles, you'll end up at a place that makes you really happy.
1: Which is the goal. And you're at R Street Institute. And just based on my interaction through you with, on Twitter, you seem happy. And I know social media isn't real life, um, but it, you genuinely seem like you're enjoying what you're doing. Um, And R Street Institute obviously is much more in the like libertarian, small L libertarian approach to policy. So I know that their slogan was uh, free markets, real solutions. And in an era of Trump, it's kind of hard to be a libertarian because Trump is... He's like almost the opposite of a libertarian when you come from the the free market solution versus like the nationalist populist solution that that Trump's been promoting. So I, I'm sure it's it's got to be a little daunting to to be at a, a public policy think tank that has that libertarian feel to it. Um, But I, I was curious, you know, based on your going from you know just being a GOP intern to then working at well, a lot of people would consider to be, you know, the more uh, the more establishment weekly standard to now at a libertarian Street Institute. How did that personal progression really unfold?
0: Enjoying today's episode? Take a second to share today's episode with family and friends on social media. Wanna do even more? Swing over to iTunes and give the Brian Nichols show a rate and review.
2: Um, so hi I guess I've always been the nerdiest person in the room. Um, <clears throat> poor me at America Rising Pack. Um, I would try to talk SCOTUS stuff with my colleagues and they're like, Shoshana, shut up. I'm like, all right, all right. <laughs> um, you know, they were all political nerds and everyone kind of had a, certain policies that really got them. Um, But few people were as like broadly nerdy as was I. Um, so I just I learned that I was, I guess, nerdier than I realized I was. And while I enjoyed politics, you know, from from the 2016 election during that time, it kind of became more of a game to me rather than looking for people who like promoted solutions, um, and that that started to change the way I thought about stuff. And there are definitely candidates I would one day work for, but um, there's not many of them. Like one of them is Governor Ducey, who is perfect. I adore him so much, um, and uh, he's been just doing everything great. But there's so few out there like that. Um, so I kinda like just working with people who wanna do the stuff that I wanna do. So it's hard being a libertarian, but I guess it's always been hard because the Republican Party has always disagreed with a lot of the foundational principles, opting for traditionalism, which is an arbitrary thing because you can have good traditions and bad traditions rather than freedom, which is usually a really good thing. Um so I, I guess we've always had differences with the party itself. But it's just what those differences are have changed. But at the same time, it's not that hard for me because um, when we don't like something, we don't work with Republicans. We'll work with Democrats if we prefer what they're doing um, because we have pure autonomy. Like it, we can do whatever and we call balls and strikes and everyone still likes working with us. Um, we pick our battles and um, we intentionally do pick some and we intentionally don't pick others. And I think any organization just has to think about what it makes sense for them to do Um so, it you know, it's 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 funny, but it, it kind of works out really well that way. And for me, just being a nerd and being able to work on nerdy things, <laughs> it's been fantastic. Um, it's it, it's funny to me, but I think a lot of people don't realize quite how nerdy they are. Like a good example is just if you're going into politics to work on a ton of different policies and you genuinely enjoy that research and working on those policies. You should go into policy instead of politics. You mm. can go in and work for a guy once he's in office, but unfortunately, policy rarely has a voice on campaigns.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you, you mentioned picking your battles. Um, your battle that you seem to have really chosen as you know your number one, you know, carry the, the the flag to the top of the hill and plant it right there is occupational licensing, and that's one of the areas I think libertarians but also a lot of republicans have a golden opportunity to really take hold of and try to really change a lot of people's hearts and minds because it's a very real issue so peek behind the curtain um and i don't think this is you know anything that we we couldn't share (laughs) but uh shoshana will be joining me in philadelphia for the america's future foundation um in december to discuss occupational licensing because it is such a very um such a very important topic to discuss, but also a topic that a lot of people aren't aware of and how deep it actually has its roots into our our fabric of our overall society. So to start off, I wanted to let you have the the platform being the the policy expert for occupational licensing to number one kind of teach us what is occupational licensing and I guess how you came to saying this is this is the battle I'm gonna pick. This is where I'm gonna plant my flag in this hill. And be the issue that I really want to discuss.
2: <clears throat> no, that's a great question. Um, and it's it's funny because, you know, recently I, w- I was lucky to even be able to write about policy ever. And I'm like, oh, cool, I can do that now and people will take me seriously. Um, but it, it, it's also a little frightening when people come to me as an expert. I'm like, guys, I'm a little kid. Like, what the heck? Um, <laughs> so it, it's, it's funny <laughs> the, uh, the way that all works out. Um but, uh, when I was, so when I was 19, I was at the Federalist Society Convention and I actually went intentionally to learn more about the constitution and listen to the debates and stuff like that. Um, and I came across professor Randy Barnett, who is now my favorite human and the poor guy has to put up with me all the time because I'm his biggest fan. Um, he, he basically explained the, the constitutional ground, um, about a unenumerated rights that, um, that enumerated rights should be treated, uh, with as much respect as unenumerated ones. Like just cause it's not written down doesn't mean it doesn't matter and deserve protection, which is literally, literally what the ninth amendment says. And that's also the, the heart of the privileges and, and the privileges or immunity clauses. Um, so I started to learn more about that, like what kind of unenumerated rights they were talking about. And Clark Neely, um, who's now a friend, but at the time was at IJ and was litigating, um, had given a speech about Sandy Meadows, um, of, of an elderly widow who could only support herself by doing floristry, she knew how to arrange flowers, but she didn't really have other skills, and she felt comfortable doing that. Um, the government stopped her because she unfortunately lived in the only state where you need a license to do so, um, and so they took away her ability to um, to arrange flowers, and she died alone and in poverty, and she would have died anyway, but not in poverty because, um, just because of of government and that I've read that story uh, at least a thousand times. And every time it breaks my heart again and again. So after reading that, I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea this is a thing. Um, I started looking into it more. I realized how widespread it is from hair braiders to, um, to people who care for lawns in any capacity. So a kid mowing your yard, um, lemonade stands, stuff like that. You need a permit there. And it goes past just Licensing, But into permits and also con laws, which are certificate of need laws, but they are cons because you literally need per- permission from your competitors in order to compete. And licensing often an, amounts to the same thing. And it's just there, there's so much of it. Um, licensing's just um, exploded over the, the past years. And it's not because data says, um, if you don't have a license, this isn't safe. There's no data behind it. They just arbitrarily do it for no reason. Um, well, they do it for a reason to protect incumbents. But it's not about health and safety. There's no data showing that any of this stuff is dangerous. And um, that just really got to me because I, I'm i very big on people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. I have a lot of um, various uh, uh, physical illnesses and I overcome them. But what if I needed a license to be a digital media specialist mm-hmm. or to um, to do the work I do? I don't know if I could have overcome certain barriers, maybe because I have political connections. But that's not right. That's just you know, it, it's unethical and it's wrong. So all those reasons and more just kind of got me and got me right in the field. So I just, I got really into the issue and I, I wrote about it over the years. And when I joined our street, um, my colleague who's um, a student of professor Barnett, we were just like, uh, want to do licensing reform as part of our street. So we just made it into a thing. But um, I I still can't believe I get to do this for a living. Like all the things I enjoy and to hopefully help people be allowed to work, you know.
1: Oh, absolutely. And this is the thing about occupational licensing, and then you mentioned the other areas of licensing or, or permits, et cetera, et cetera, where it really does have a negative impact on your everyday, average, ordinary citizen because it's it's gotten its its roots into so many different facets of our daily lives um, that. the average person, they look at licensing and they're like, oh, you need to have a license because you're doing something that could really harm somebody if you do it wrong. So like they talk about doctors or, or I mean, engineers, because you're building a building and the building could collapse. But then as you mentioned, being a florist or being a hair braider, it's just, it's in, I think my opinion, but a lot of other people's opinions that that's where it gets insane. And I've heard the standard put out you know, if you would have your best friend do this, then do they really need to have a license? Like if you would have your best friend come to your house to walk your dog, do they need to have a dog walking license? And I think that best friend standard at the, just to start out would be a means to maybe help change some of these laws because they are so damaging to people.
0: Want to support the Brian Nichols show? please consider making a one-time PayPal donation at the Brian Nichols Show at gmail.com or join the Patreon at bnicholsliberty.
2: Yeah, I'm totally with you there. And, and um, I, you know, there, there are some things that I kind of get you might, not, you might want to have a license for. Like, I would trust my best friend to pull something gross out of me if I fell on something, like whether it's a splinter or something bigger. Mm-hmm. But um, people probably should go to doctors for that. But like the, the, the few exceptions like that aside, I'm totally with you. It's the same thing with barbers. Like mom, if you can do it for free, another good standard is if you can do it for free um, and it's legal, but only once money's exchanged, it's dangerous. Like, oh, I didn't realize how dangerous money is. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the, the haircutting thing is a big one. You know, there have been neighborhood moms who would kind of cut all the kids' hair. And like, it's very wholesome and homely and it's sweet. But um, they should be allowed to do that. And even if the parents want to pay them, they should be allowed. Like in most states, I can't dye people's hair without a license, but I dye my own hair. And, um, you you know, there's a bunch of stuff like that. I I even get um, there are lower barriers that I'm I'm open to as far as like inspections. Like, I think, you know, I'm not sure if they need even regular health inspections, but I think someone should be able to call up the health inspector and be like, hey, this barbershop is really gross. I think there's something wrong. That's that's one thing. But um, you shouldn't need a license to be a barber. And it, it gets into, I mean, it touches everything. Um, in a lot of states, you can't be a barber if you have a criminal record. And um, I even tried to tweet Will Shatner about that because you know how he'll just reply to people. <laughs> and I'm always looking for ways to elevate the issue. And he's like, I don't want a felon cutting my hair. You know, Those are sharp objects. I hate to break it to him, but if a felon does murder him, that'll he's not going to, you know, be a barber again. Like he that's you know, he's going back to jail. Like felons who want to get their lives back on track, or people who have stolen something, committed smaller crimes, or, you know, whatever, they're they're going to do these jobs in order to get their lives back on track. It's not like there's going to be one barber who just keeps killing people over and over again. Like that's not how this stuff works. Um, <laughs> there's and,
1: there, there's know. not a real life, Edward Scissorhand.
2: Right, exactly. <laughs> It's like, that's not how this works at all. But it's, um, you know, when when people who used to be in jail can't get jobs, they go back to crime because they can't get jobs. And if they can't work to support their families, which a lot of them have that, you know, I can understand why they go back to crime um, and that, you know, there there's so many different areas it touches and the, the extent to which like um, there was I forget which state it was, but one state trained prisoners to become barbers so that after they got out, they could have a a job and be ready. But that state also prohibited people who were in jail from becoming barbers. So the state's means ends doesn't even match up. Um, firefighters. It it was another one in California when Governor Ducey, again, my favorite human being learned about this. He's like, "Um, I'm going to create an all former prisoner firefighter unit. And I'm like, I just love you. You are perfect. Um, (laughs) But it's it's frustrating to see how much of this stuff happens. And there's good people like Ducey and and also like uh, Pennsylvania's governor. Uh, Governor Wolf has done some really good licensing reform work. And it's great because he's a Democrat. And while it's a bipartisan issue, a lot of times um, elected Democrats don't always get on board. So it's really great to see him doing stuff. Um, but it's it touches all areas of life. Like nurses can't do things they're qualified to do because doctors want the monopoly on it. So your healthcare costs go up like it's just really basic things that just our common sense can't happen because of monopolies. And it just, it, it enrages me.
1: And one of the biggest monopolies that, you know, you obviously living in DC and me being here in Philadelphia, that I've seen this occupational licensing um, battle really get to the forefront of the modern uh, media uh, infrastructure is talking about the uh, manner of ride sharing versus taxicabs. And you have basically the the taxi monopoly within these respective cities with the medallions they purchased for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they were essentially at the um, behest of the state, and they bought into their monopoly. And then all of a sudden you have Uber and Lyft coming in with these ride-sharing alternatives and and basically, you know, screwing the monopoly, saying, Well, you know what? We're not a taxi service, we're a ride-sharing service, and we're gonna find a way to to circumvent this these. Uh, monopolies that are put in place by the state and now we're seeing the taxi cab industries basically crumble and you hear people from the, the 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 city governments and and the state governments saying this is absolutely terrible we need to save our taxi cab industries and they're refusing to acknowledge that it's the fact that they created the monopoly in the first place that caused the problem where now you have these taxi cab drivers who have invested themselves into the monopoly via the state that now they're they're basically facing like it's the chickens are coming home to roost. Now they're being destroyed by the very thing that they didn't think was going to be a possibility. But here we are in 2018, with the technology we have. and it it's crumbling before their eyes.
2: You know, South Park had a really good episode on that. i I love their ride sharing uh, wacky races episode. It was so stupid, but it, it was true. I mean, you know, it, whatever works better, people are gonna use. Like I use cabs sometimes, but I try to avoid it because I have really bad experiences there. <clears throat> and when I have a bad experience with Uber, I just email them. I'm like, oh, guys, this happened. We need to end this. And they're like, yeah, we got this for you. Um, you know, people just for, people for, forget that stuff and how government created the problem in the first place. I remember learning about medallions because, you know, I grew up on Long Island and we went into New York City sometimes. And my dad had explained the whole medallion system. Um, and it's just I mean, government created the problem. And um and it's exactly like the chickens are coming home to roost. And the I think um a couple of years ago my it's the page isn't there anymore, but it was actually the Seattle Washington City Council had my favorite reason ever for uh for regulating um ride uh ride, ride sharing in Uber and Lyft. And it was because I, I it's not a quote, but it's a pretty good paraphrase that they were worried that it that they would compete against taxis. But that if they weren't competing against taxis and getting, you know, a new clientele, then it would be OK. So it was just express protectionism. And they didn't even mince words. I'm like, you know, gosh, guys, you you didn't even need to, like, say any more <laughs> things. Thanks for being clear about that. And I just I couldn't believe it. Um, Although I know some people, unfortunately, believe that protectionism is a, um, it, you know, is a proper government uh, use of um, time and money. It's It's clearly not. But it was just kind of hilarious for me to see them say that. Um, But people just really need to let the market work itself out because, if you know, both Uber and Lyft are at the points where, um, for the most part, regulation is going to preserve them. But it's the same thing with Facebook, with any big company. Most of these regulations, unless they're pretty small and basic, are going to make it so that only the big guys can stay and any new little guy will leave. So if you hate Uber and Lyft, you shouldn't like regulations because they're going to survive. Um, the little guys won't. And, and I don't care who it is. Like Uber's great. Lyft is great. I've used other services, too. I just want what's best. And that's what consumers want, too. And, and you know, I, I know uh, politicians are supposed to represent them, but they don't always do so great. Um, but it's, you know, pe- people forget that regulations capture, you know, they, they entrench incumbents. Um, So whenever people uh, complain about someone and ask for regulation, you got to be careful. Um, I have a new piece coming out, hopefully this week or next, on another industry this is happening to, and it'll blow your mind. And, of course, the the part of the industry that actually had the problems that caused the regulations, um, they're all for the regulations. And I'm like, you are literally the problem. You are why these (laughs) regulations are even happening. It it, um, infuriates me. But um, but it's, you know, if government keeps getting involved, they're just going to make everything worse. They're going to make, you know, maybe Uber and Lyft be the next cabs for as long as they can and not in a good way, not in a like, you know, they're getting people around way. But in a they don't need to innovate anymore because like people because government um, made sure that they won't ever have competition. Um, you know, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but this stuff still after years of knowing that this is a thing, it still blows my mind.
1: <laughs> Don't worry, you are not preaching to, well, you kind of are, but like, there is actually a, a very diverse audience for this show, which I'm so thankful for that, yeah, there are libertarians, but we kind of dabble into the conservatarian, conservative um, means of thought. But also, I have a lot of um, leftists who listen to the show. Um, I've had, you know, socialists, communists, moderates, independents, actually on as guests, And I think it's so important to have a voice like you to talk about this issue, because I think one of the main issues is that those on the left view government as a means of protecting the little guy from the big guy. When, as you've mentioned, a lot of times the big guy in cahoots with the government creates these regulations, creates these laws that end up hurting the little guy. And and that's part of the problem. And you you did touch on Facebook there, like when when uh, you had Zuckerberg and then you had Jack Dorsey from Twitter doing their um their little uh, congressional hearings um on in Washington, and they they basically asked, well, would you help us write regulations for social media companies? And they oh, of course we'd be willing to help. And it's like that's part of the problem because they're going to create regulations that are going to inhibit those uh possible alternatives that that competition from coming into the marketplace to be real competition to twitter to facebook to instagram and instead it's going to entrench these these massive corporations and really make it so there is no ability to compete against them and then the the user or it, it you know us the the average individual american is stuck with you know the okay facebook twitter pick your poison and Oh, if you're a conservative, oh, you're a libertarian, well, sorry, we're gonna make sure that that speech isn't allowed in our platforms. And it just it's and I hate the slippery slope, uh, the slippery slope argument, but it really is a slippery slope argument because that's how it happens and we've watched it happen for for decades, if not centuries.
0: Connect with Brian on Twitter and Facebook at B Nichols Liberty and send your comments and questions to the Brian Nichols show at gmail.com.
2: Yeah, exactly. And people have such a short memory. But remember when nothing was going to beat out AOL? Like, that's not a thing. <laughs> or Yahoo. What about Ask Jeeves? Poor Ask Jeeves. He's dead. <laughs> he is dead now because of Google, which is great. And Google might die one day. Who knows what'll die and what'll
1: live? MySpace. Um, MySpace.com was the biggest yeah. thing in the world.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, And all these places, if they suck, they will die. Like, that's how it works in the free market. Um, it's, you know, people have, people really have such a short memory and a lot of people say, and it's true, no one wants regulation more than Facebook. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that we can't have an intelligent conversation about stuff. And I don't mean that in like the, uh, the hippie, oh, you know, peace and love, but you know, (laughs) we, it's reasonable to want to know how Facebook changes our lives but um government's not going to be the one to do that you know you kind of wonder if not for government would something have beat out cabs earlier or would cabs just have had more competition earlier you know you kind of wonder the what ifs of of it and you if you compare it to different markets um where there is more and less government you kind of wonder um it's just this stuff really gets to me because there's there's a clear difference and i'm you know I'm not against regulation altogether. I think there could be a future where we don't need any, but that's not the future now. But there, uh-huh. there's so many things we overregulate that we don't need to, and it's not based on data. Um, you know, a lot of I've I've looked at data for a bunch of different professions, just kind of as I've needed to as I was writing on stuff. And there's no difference. Like um, a, another really good example was uh, a, a year and a half ago. Um, New Jersey moved to license pool contractors to stop people from drowning. Well, I have some news for you. If you look by population per per pool, per capita, whatever different measure you want to use, I used a couple. There's no difference between um, the the rates and numbers of drowning um, in states that do and don't license pool contractors because pool contractors don't stop people from drowning. Lifeguards do. And also people who like swim safely and like, you know give your kids that whole safety speech about swimming and whatever but um you know a, a, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that evidence is so rarely used in policy making that there's even a term for it evidence based policy making the you know miraculous idea that we should use evidence before stopping people from doing stuff um it's it's horrifying but it's true and and in licensing you know i i just see it all the time like there is no epidemic of like people dying from haircuts or bad flowers. It's none of that. Um, you know, and with cabs and Uber, like a lot of cabs are terrible. And I've been in some bad Ubers and bad lifts. But for both of those, every time I had a really bad experience, um, they got back to me um, and said, we'll make sure you never have this driver again. And we're going to talk to them, even though I don't know what happens after that. You know, I kind of assume that after a couple of those, they don't want that liability on their hands. Um, and, and the system works. It just it's it frustrates me to see government stop good ideas before they can come to fruition and, and to also just do stuff to help individual businesses rather than to let the industry flourish and do cool stuff, you know?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned a world without regulation. I think that's a world that libertarians, it makes their hearts sore. Um but um I, I did want to ask, because I, I, I have heard this concept thrown out there before, and I just wanted to get your expert opinion, Shoshana. Um, so I have heard about the idea of private uh regulators. So um if you think of like a, a vitamin, uh you'll have the independent organization that will judge the quality of the vitamin, the the ingredients in the vitamin uh through independent testing. And that's a means because the vitamins and, and supplements and stuff aren't regulated by the, uh, the FDA. So this third party private company is basically being the regulator. And instead of saying, okay, you can't serve this, pro- you can't serve this product. You can't serve this vitamin. You can't serve this protein powder, um, the difference is instead they, they don't put their stamp of approval on it. So as a consumer, I'm looking for, let's say, come up. I love weightlifting. I go to uh, GNC and I'm looking for protein powder and I'm going through and I see, you know, brand a brand B brand C and brand a and B have this, this seal of approval. Brand C doesn't, that should be a little red flag to me saying, okay, well, whatever this brand C didn't do, um, that didn't let them get the seal of approval. That that's a big red flag. I shouldn't buy this product. Do you see a, a private independent uh, regulation or a regulatory uh, firm or just the idea of independent regulations being the, maybe the the future where we don't necessarily need to rely so much on government? Yeah, I
2: actually, you know, the, I think there's one area where that works super, super well. Um, uh it, it's uh sorry, the kosher symbol it it works really well um so it, it's funny because if uh for anyone who's kosher, if you see just a plain k on something, that just means this could be kosher, but we don't really know, but we'll just say it. um that's literally what it means because it's on jello, which is very not kosher because it has like um hooves or stomach lining. I forget which is which it's one of the two in it um and it's it's not kosher, it's not made kosherly from a kosher part of an animal. So everyone just takes it as a joke. Um, But the OU is really trusted. I think pretty much everyone is, you know, if they're kosher, they'll eat something with the OU on it. And then there's other ones that are kind of in between. Like I won't name them because I don't want to be mean to the kosher signs, but there's one that's kind of known that they're a little bit flippant with it and will kind of throw it on everything. But um, usually if I know that it's pretty reliably kosher, whatever, let's say it's on lettuce. I know lettuce is going to be kosher. And then um, I do my own research because while I – follow kosher stuff there didn't used to be kosher symbols so I figure I can pretty much evaluate for myself not all the time but a lot of times Um, I even have to email uh, companies to figure out if I can eat their cheese by figuring out if there was animal or vegetable run in it stuff like that Uh but um, the kosher system works I mean people use it reliably anyone who wants to know for sure if something's kosher they know how to use all these different symbols and there's a ton of them but it works great you know um, I could see a, a future where that works out totally fine Um, It would be a while, but I think that that could evolve for a lot of different things. Um, You know, kosher is just the beginning, but I think the system would work for a lot of food things. Um, And, you know, nothing's perfect. Government certainly isn't perfect. But um, (laughs) I think that that would be a really good solution. Um, You know, it's an interesting question because I've only been thinking about this more recently. Um, But I, I think that's a system that could work out really well. It would definitely take time. And you know, we'd have to consider what industries would probably benefit first. Um, but I, I would love that idea, even if they started out while government's also supervising things, if they want to make an extra level, like maybe um, this one, you know, uh, for a fact doesn't include certain ingredients or or this doctor has a higher rating and this rating means something. Because um, the, the other side of it is you see a lot of these places. Um, a, a friend who's a nurse had told me about this because I didn't know about this beforehand. Um, a lot of like these, these uh, doctor awards people give by just literally paying to get the award and then they can hang it on their <laughs> wall and say, look, I'm an award winning doctor. And I'm like, oh, that's apparently how this works. This is really bad. So, you know, it, there's, it needs work, of course, for different kinds of industries. But if you look at the way the kosher sign works, the supply and demand, it, it just works. Yeah. You know, um, there's demand for it. And there are all these different places that popped up. Um, so I, I think it's, it's possible, but I think it's also going to be imperfect and people have to realize that, but, um, sometimes the most daunting things are more perfect than we realize, like self-driving cars are going to save lives Uh. because human error causes crashes. Um, and like the overwhelming majority of them and, uh, robots other than Bender don't get drunk. So, um, you know, (laughs) it's, it's a bright future and I, I hope that's something that starts happening a little bit more.
1: Oh, agreed. Um, and I think this would be a good, um, maybe a good middle ground to start off, like, you know, the, the first step. You mentioned some some governors who who have already been taking the step into um, helping get rid of some of these occupational licensing barriers, such as uh, Governor Ducey and then Governor Wolf here in Pennsylvania. And I, being from New York State myself as well, you know, we have the New York State DEC, um, which is essentially a state-run, redundant uh, environmental conservation organization that is essentially New York state's version of the EPA. So I'm just curious, based on the research you've done, do you think maybe federalizing the approach to these regulatory agencies from a state-by-state basis would be a better approach right now in 2018 versus where we are? So, you know, we have the, the federal EPA and instead of that, we have New York state's DEC and Pennsylvania's you know, version of the EPA and, and that state-by-state um, kind of mentality?
2: You know, I, I tend to always err state over national, but that doesn't mean it can violate our liberties. You know, um, the, the 14th Amendment's uh, privileges or immunities clause also means that, you know, our, unen- our all and our, sorry, all of and um, our unenumerated rights are always protected there. Uh, a lot of people yell, at me, oh, but federalism when I say that courts should strike down bad state laws. And that's because they should like the, the states don't have free reign to like step all over its people. Um, but I, I think state tends to work out a little bit better, and also it's actually really helpful in regulatory reform. Um, think about it this way: because Louisiana is the only state that licenses florists, we can prove using data that um, there's, you know, there's no difference in safety or anything like that between Louisiana and other states. Well, if it were nationalized, we wouldn't have that data. We'd just be able to look at maybe people doing it illegally, and you know, that data wouldn't be as helpful because of the the um, not everything else would be equal. Um, so I tend to always go state over national. And also the other problem is if, if we were to move nationally with like licensing or uh, occupational licensing generally, um, we'd probably have more licenses, not fewer, um, because there's a lot of lone wolves, like just states that there's the only one to license something, or maybe they're one of 10 or one of even 15. That still means that there's that there's you know um, a bunch of states that aren't licensing these. So that not only provides data, but it also shows, look, it's fine here. We can do it. You know, we can reform it here. Um, so I, I always tend to go state over national for that reason. And it really is the the, the, the cliche, but it's true. You know, the uh, laboratories of democracy, um, you get to see how stuff works when you get to try it in one place. And even with reform, if people are hesitant to, you can try it in one state, see how it does. Um, and I sometimes I wish that could apply to more policies, although I understand why sometimes it can't. Um, I I always tend to opt for for local stuff, even though I know it can be worse locally. Usually it ends up being better than if the system were national.
1: Valid. All right. Well, uh, Shoshana Weissman, it has been an absolute pleasure. And before I let you go, I want to give you the floor. I want you to be able to promote any happenings that are taking place over at the R Street Institute, anything personally that you're getting ready to uh, to go on any endeavors with. So Shoshana, the floor is yours.
2: (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, go follow Doug Ducey on Twitter at Doug Ducey. He is the greatest human being, um, and he puts up with my (laughs) nonsense. Um, Go follow my scholar base like Randy Barnett and Con Law Warrior on Twitter. They're fantastic. They're among many I adore. Um our street is the greatest job. People think I'm joking or I'm uh, emphasizing it for PR. I'm not. I I am in love with my job. Um we do lots of cool stuff and if you work in politics and government and want to do work with us, just message me and I'd love to like do stuff. We do a lot of state level work too. Um and also um Pennsylvania is home to several sloths. Um <laughs> one is in the lay Valley Zoo and another I think Philadelphia has a sloth at the zoo. Different sloths, great sloth, though. I actually visited the Lay Valley Zoo to pet the sloth because that was the closest and cheapest sloth I could find. Um, And it was it was a great experience. Um, And also, like, go yell at your elected officials to do occupational licensing reform and let them know that I'm here to help them with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. We got to take a time out because I think we we have to finally I got to nail this down. Where did the the obsession for sloths come from? Because I I find that absolutely hilarious on your Twitter. Just the, the the constant sloth references.
2: So when I was younger, it used to be pugs. I loved 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 pugs, and I still love pugs. They're they're adorable. But when I started at America Rising Pack right out of college, I was twenty one, and um I started using lots of gifts because they wanted me to use gifts, and I'm like, sure, I'll give this a shot, and I like gifts anyway. But when you're on the internet long enough, you just come across a lot of sloths. It's just something that happens. And at first, I'm like, they're weird. But then I saw a sloth give a lady a flower. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest animal ever. And I fell in love. (laughs) Um, So that's basically what happened. And then since then, it's just the way they look up at people, their human eyes, their soulful, soulful eyes, like, oh, man, I can't get over it. And they're just so perfect. Um, And our streets, literally, my bonus is they're sending me to Costa Rica to pet sloths (laughs) <laughs> um, I have the greatest job on earth. Like, you know, I hope everyone on earth can find what is for me, the R street Institute, like it's the greatest. Um, but yeah, sloths are perfect and you should go pet
1: them. Sloths are perfect and you should go pet them. If there's anything people take away from today's episode, I hope it's that, um, but with that being said, Shoshana, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me on uh, the Brian Nichols show today. And I forgot to ask, I mean, obviously we, we did hint at it on, on Twitter, at Senator Shoshana, but where else can folks find you on, uh, on social media if they want to find out what's happening, not only with you, but also with the R Street Institute?
2: So uh, at Senator Shoshana is me. Uh, for R Street, it's at RSI. Um, we have a, probably the funnest Twitter feed in policy, and we call Congressman Bay sometimes, but only when they deserve it. Um, and my Twitter has links to everything. The link in my bio links to all my other things. Um, I post uh dresses I make on Instagram at Senator Shoshana also. Um Twitter's mostly Slavs Politics and um sometimes uh data from not safe for work websites, but it's cause they're funny. Um there uh, I just posted one earlier about pumpkins, which I was a little bit surprised about, but um I keep it weird. Um, but you'll hopefully you'll have a fun time just <laughs> reading my Twitter. And if you don't follow me, at least follow our streets, because once we hit 20,000, that's when I'm allowed to go see the loss.
1: <laughs> like my Twitter, I, I told uh, some, some guy who was like, I'm following you now because you did something. I forget what it was. And I was like, all right, get ready for a lot of like libertarian jokes, the office references <laughs> and and just gifts galore. So, you know, it just be prepared. But uh, Shoshana, thank you so much for joining me today. I uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think, you know, as an advocate uh, for occupational licensing, you are one of the best. And the fact that you're only 25, that means that you have an entire life to dedicate to this. And I think you're going to be easily one of, if not the num- the top experts and voices for this uh, this issue. So with that, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, thank you for, uh, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, feel free to share the episode with family and friends. This is a very important topic. And I think uh, to have an episode like this at your disposal um, is going to be nothing but, but positive and it's going to be a great tool to help educate people across the world, uh, but more importantly across the United States and our local uh, state and local governments. Um, so share today's episode, go ahead, give us a like and review on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty, um, also on Facebook at bNicholsliberty. Nichols Liberty. But until next week, folks, it's Brian Nichols signing off here in the Brian Nichols show for Senator Shoshana Weissman of R street Institute.
0: We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Brian Nichols show. Find more episodes at Brian